Mini episode 1126 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini-episode number 1126. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris here. We've got a fun one here today with good friend and fellow FDH Lounge dignitary Ben Chu breaking down the 2019 NBA draft, what we just saw several days ago, and how everything's shaking out, some of the winners and losers, and uh, some of the winners uh, are particularly kind of obvious at this point. I I think certainly those in the top three draft slots, but uh, we'll be talking about that, some of the other winners, some of the losers, some of the intriguing situations in the league going forward. All that and much, much more with FDH Lounge Dignitary, uh, one, one of my favorite FDH Lounge Dignitaries, my man, Ben Chu. Ben, welcome back to the show, my man. Uh, thanks, Rick, as always. Appreciate being on. It's always great to uh, have you on. And, uh, again, I, uh, I made sure to put you over, by the way, uh, when doing the, uh, the segment with uh, Cynthia Freeland. I think it was 11:23. As far as your pick of uh, Toronto to win the NBA Finals, I didn't have the guts to join you in that one there. But uh, in talking about uh, how the analytics were pointing in that direction, you trusted them. I didn't, and so I, I made sure to name check you during that situation because you deserve the credit. Well, I appreciate it, Rick. The, the most important part at the end of the day is not to be right, but to make sure that you have proof that you were right. Exactly, and you did that. And uh, I would say equally important is that the Golden State Warriors lost the NBA Finals. And uh, again, uh, folks, uh, as the saying goes, don't let that uh, fact distract you from the fact that the Warriors blew a 3-1 lead. But uh, now that I've got that obligatory point out of the way, uh, going to (laughs) this year's NBA draft, uh, again, there were uh, certain to be, assuming they hung on to the picks, three winners coming out of the draft this year, and uh, those are the teams holding the top three picks I feel like New Orleans is sort of a category unto itself with everything that they were able to do uh, with acquiring the fourth pick from L.A. in the A.D. trade. I will tell you that, again, I was a little more underwhelmed than were some in the league as far as the haul that they got from the Lakers. A lot of this, again, Brandon Ingram is the one guy out of the bunch, I think, who still potentially has a high ceiling, and if he can reach that, then they will have a good chance to potentially win the trade. But in looking at the other pieces here, I mean, I'd love to buy Lonzo Ball for what he's worth and sell him for what everybody else thinks he's worth. Josh Hart, to me, he could be a really good sixth man on a a very good team. But, uh, you know, what you've got there collectively with that fourth pick, with what Griff was able to do with that, flip that for more parts from there, then I think you are able to kind of come out of this when you're looking at the wide lens angle of everything they were able to get for AD and say that, yeah, they should feel pretty good about everything that they're putting around their new star Zion Williamson at this point. Well, I would think overall, too, Rick, is that if we even just shift back four months ago, a lot of us were wondering what value do we need to get for Anthony Davis. Because we've seen in a lot of these star trades to get good play, good to great players, and then assets from that. And very quickly, that Griffin was able to do 
their picks in the draft, but I thought overall, just in terms of total value of resetting the franchise, they did a fantastic job, and Griff should be commended for making some, for gaining a lot of assets, taking some very good players. Exactly, and that's one of these things where, again, number one, Griff, based on the job that he did in Cleveland, certainly deserves the benefit of the doubt. Uh, much like, again, uh, in the uh, NHL entry draft of the last couple days, my man Steve Eiserman, who was a little bit of a head-scratcher uh, with a pick at number six overall uh, that a lot of people thought was a reach. But again, uh, he deserves a lot, of, uh, uh, a lot of benefit of the doubt based on the job that he did in Tampa Bay. Similarly, David Griffin, based on everything he did in Cleveland, I'm loath to second-guess him. But it is one of these things also, too, where I will say in his defense... That deal, I would have thought that that deal uh, from the Lakers was a rotten one were it not for the fact that what's happened in the meantime uh, from when the talks were happening during the winter and now is they won the lottery, they got Zion at number one, and you're not evaluating that as these are the picks to help restock your team after AD goes. It's these are the picks that are supposed to complement Zion Williamson and help him to become a franchise player as you're building around him. So viewed through that lens, it's a little bit easier to like what Griff did. Right, and I, I think the value will will know in the test of time in two to three years from now. They made some very good picks. Uh, Jackson Hayes is one of the better young big men in college basketball. The question I think we all have that situation is how, how well is he going to pair with Zion? Right. And how is that overly going to work itself out? And they were able to pick, uh, to, to pick up Alexander as well, the guard from, uh, from Virginia Tech, who's a guy that rose up the draft stock for uh, a lot of the draft picks and a lot of the a lot of the fans. So I think they have a very good start. And you consider the haul that they got is pretty good considering we've seen stars in the NBA in the totality of the history got trade for a lot less and gotten a lot less in return. Absolutely. And again, you knew that they were going to be a winner coming out of the draft. Also, teams two and three, Memphis and the Knicks, assuming that they hung on to the picks there. And Especially there was a little bit of sleight of hand going on with the Knicks up until the last minute. What are they going to do? Are they going to move the pick? Uh, again, I, I I never believed that even the Knicks would be stupid enough to take somebody other than R.J. Barrett at a three. Maybe they trade out of that, but they didn't. They did what I think is the smart thing and got a very high-ceiling player in R.J. Barrett. Uh, Memphis, obviously, was no surprise once they traded Mike Conley to Utah, who all of a sudden becomes a much more interesting team in their own right. But Memphis starting what will be potentially a significant rebuild uh, around uh, John Morant, you've also got Jaron Jackson Jr. there, so you've got to add other pieces in Memphis. But uh, thoughts on the other two teams there at 2 and 3 and what they were able to do building for the future? Well, we, but, well prior to this, we always discussed with Memphis, the real question was when was Brady and Grind going to officially end, and I think with Conley now going to Utah, it's all the pieces have now left. The Grizzlies have a very interesting team right now. you got a lot of young guys like uh, Dylan Brooks, and you have a lot of assets that they acquired. They got Jonas Valanciunas from the Raptors in the Marcus Hall trade. I, I was actually, I liked overall what they were able to do with the draft. They also got Brandy Clark relatively cheap as well as a good pair down low with Jaron Jackson Jr. I think the real question is, is with Morant's playmaking abilities and potential, what, what are you really trying to do overall with him? Are you trying to pull a Russell Westbrook situation where you say, look, you create and then we'll just put the pieces around you? Or is Morant very similar to a Magic Johnson to where you need to give him pieces that accentuate his, his skill set? Yeah, 
I think it's going to be the latter, in my own personal opinion. I think that they're going to have to continue to augment. And, uh, again, that this is going to be a, a more than a one-year process in terms of getting back to where they were, much less where they want to go. But uh, an excellent start for them and for the Knicks uh, as well. Uh, in terms of some of the other teams in the draft that you felt like came out of this as the winners, who were some of the ones you identified? Well, the first one I identified, and I think the overall they, they did the best job, I think, was Atlanta. I really liked that deal. I did like them acquiring Hunter because I think he's a big piece for a team like that and also taking Cam Reddish, who I know we discussed. Yes. I uh, that he has tremendous potential. And the one thing I always thought was how Atlanta over, overall played the draft was that they acquired assets, but they also were to, to acquire top-flight talent that allowed them to build the team. I think Travis Sklanek gives gets a lot of credit here because at this point, looking at that roster top to bottom, you add, add those pieces of Trey Young and John Collins and Kevin Warner and some of the other bench guys that they're going to that they have on this team. They should be competition for the 7th and 8th seed in the Eastern Conference in the upcoming season. And they're, they're just a team that I, I think they did very good in terms of drafting for what fits their system instead of drafting for what is perceived value at the end of the day. That's true, because you got to make the pieces fit. And uh, when you're looking at, a, a, again, how they were able to do that, and that, that's an interesting thing. My only question about them taking Hunter is, it makes sense in a way. If you're a team where you think you've got the building blocks in place there, it makes sense. I'm wondering, is Atlanta far enough along the way in terms of getting their foundational pieces there to where they can afford to spend the fourth overall pick on somebody that's going to be a complimentary player, a guy who's never going to project as better than their number four score or number three at the very best? So are, are they far enough along because, uh, again, they, they were still the dregs of the league this past year. Uh, right. to, to me, that that feels like the kind of pick that might make sense in another year or two. But do you like it at this moment? I do like it because I don't think they really gave up that much in the long run to get it. Okay. Day. Because, as you know, too, uh, in talking about, because I, I, this is one big pet peeve I've had with GM the recent where it's not using out there. It's drafting the player at the selection because they have to instead of what fits their system instead. And I think we're going to start to see teams push a little bit more towards that end. And I think Hunter is a good player. I don't think you're ever going to think of him as a star, but I think his potential to be a great lockdown defender through two through five is very good. And he does have the range of a guy that can't step out and hit shots. And I think at this point, if you're Atlanta, if you like a guy, I would say go for it. I, I don't see there's an issue at all. Also, to get back to we didn't cover the Knicks, I think R.J. Barrett's going to be a great player for them. He has all the tools. He has the skill set. And I think the Knicks, you got to give them a lot of credit for what they what they have so far done because we have been so used to the Knicks trying to build on the build quick. Yeah. And when they don't like it's been proven that they have not been successful. We also have to give credit to their second round pick, uh Titus the King from uh Lithuania, who was originally drafted by Dallas. He he has a lot of potential too to be a great sec to be a good scorer off the bench for them and just extend the depth because right now the one thing you can say about the Knicks is well, although they might not have top white talent right now, they have a lot of interesting pieces on their roster. It's not just a, a team devoid of talent. They do, and they have excellent coaching. So the only concern that I would have about R.J. Barrett at this point is 
We've seen excellent players come into the league and basically be ruined by bad atmospheres. So do you feel like they, again, there are, there are grinders on that team, you know, guys like Robinson, guys who, you know, really kind of fight hard, excellent coaching, uh, again, not very good, uh, front office, but, uh, uh, coaching a lot of times is more important when it comes to the day-to-day. Do you have any fears whatsoever that R.J. Barrett's a guy that might get ruined in that atmosphere, or do you think there's a good chance for him to be nurtured uh, in the way that he needs? I have a feeling it can go either way. It is New York, Rick. Yeah. Some people can play in the media capital of the United States, and some people cannot do that. Right. But another thing to add with Barrett, I think the major reason why, because there was a lot of people before – after the Zion injury, considered Barrett to possibly being the long-term better projected pick. But the concern that a lot of people had, and including myself, that you saw during the NCAA tournament, is, is that he's a shot creator for himself, but he doesn't he doesn't have the playmaking abilities of a Moran or a Kobe White at this time. Right. So, if, so the question you have to ask yourself is, is this guy more of a two or three that can be our leading scorer and facilitate for others? Or is he more of a guy that he's going to be sort of like the better version of Carmelo when he was at his peak in New York? And I think the question then becomes is that if it's the second one, how good of a pick really is it then? Were you better off trying to go for a point guard like Garland or White, or are you better off just trying to acquire more assets to go after to get more cap space and you know, take some time to go after big free agents over the next two to three years. That's the same name I was thinking of. I think Nick fans are going to be slashing their wrists if this is just basically young mellow. But uh, yeah, I think he's certainly got the uh, the ability to have a higher ceiling than that, and uh, that will manifest itself if it has a chance to. As far as teams that didn't do as well during the draft, it is never in this era, ever, ever, ever a surprise to invoke a couple of the teams that I'm going to invoke, starting with the Washington Wizards, uh, the Wiz, apparently never even brought in Roy Hachimura for a workout prior to the draft. Never talked to him, never did anything, just ghosted the poor guy, and then uh, took him number nine overall. And uh, again, for a team that uh, more than almost any other in the league, I would say, needs top-flight star talent, that's not what I think of when I think of that guy. Sort of, you know, jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none, I mean, he'll, he'll be potentially an interesting and contributing player for that franchise. He could be for like 15 years. That guy doesn't scream building block for a team that desperately needs one. Well, I think also, too, is that I still think he's a top-flight potential, top-flight playmaker in the draft. The issue for the Wizards is that I'm not sure small forwards is a real big need for them at this point. Uh-huh. And I think if you're just looking at how it was done, they still did to my knowledge, I can't think back to a time where you didn't have at least a front-facing GM. Because the Wizards, to my knowledge, unless I'm mistaken, have not officially named their GM yet. And when you get into the draft selection process, you would assume you'd want that done at some point. And in this day and age, especially with cell phones and all this thing, it seems sort of very cloak and daggery that you're, you're going to draft a guy that you didn't really show a lot of interest in outward. Well, yeah. But it's going to be interesting. He's going to be, he's the first Japanese player uh, draft. He's the first, uh, excuse me, the first uh, Japanese player drafted in the league. So it's going to be, there's going to definitely be a, a small microcosm of, of fans from Japan wondering how he's going to be playing. And I think, as you can mention too, Rick, the Wizards are just the Wizards right now. So they're in this weird rebuild, not rebuild. So I, I don't know at their selection, was there a better player? Possibly, but. I 
don't think it, this is a complete swing and a miss. It's just all this information we've learned later. Yeah. It doesn't look good. No, it doesn't. It's not a good look. And, uh, again, you don't expect much out of Washington. But, again, like you said, not having a GM in place, this is a thing here, too, where a lot of times politics comes into it, Ben. Whoever comes in as the new GM, that's not a player that they pick. That's not somebody that they're invested in. It's a disaster on that basis. Correct. And, I mean, I think that's why when that news came out, a lot of people were kind of looking at it, shaking their heads, like, seriously, what, what, did, what were you guys in terms of not being in contact with him, it's kind of shocking in this day and age. It might have been different in the early 90s and the late 80s, but now when you can pretty much on a beck and call get in touch with any prospect, it's weird for a team just to be like, we like this guy, but we're not going to talk to him. It is very bizarre. And you look at a situation like Phoenix, they're another team that we don't expect to put over in the draft. And uh, again, not no surprise, we are not putting them over, at least I'm not. I mean, they get a guy potentially to be their point guard and tie Jerome with a 24th pick, although, again, I know I'm higher on him than you are. But everything that they did to get there, including passing on Kobe White with their pick, uh, it just really makes you sh- scratch your head. Some of the picks that they made uh, are reach, most people would say, on Cameron Johnson with the 11th pick overall. Phoenix, as per pretty much the norm for them, just leaving you scratching your head. And again, the commonality with Washington, I don't believe that they have their guy in place full-time who's going to be making the calls there. My, From what everything I've heard, it's been sort of by committee in the interim there in Phoenix. So again, whoever becomes the new general manager, they're not going to be invested in these picks. Right, and I think the major concern in Phoenix, where I will give Washington a little wet slack, was, was that they, they didn't move, they were essentially the ninth overall pick. They didn't really move up, move down. Essentially, Phoenix moved down to draft a guy that I think was projected in the top 20 for most players that you probably could have gotten even later in the draft if they really wanted to acquire more assets. The question I ultimately have with Phoenix is that both uh, Ty Jerome and Johnson are both three-point shooters, but at this rate, I don't really know. I know the Suns were hurting for shooters, but I'm not really sure either is that consistent enough as a player to be a all-end-all waste my pick on this guy. I give Ty Jerome a lot of credit. He's going to be a really good player on the pros, but I just really don't see him as more than a rotational guy at best. And and while they did get him later, I've just never been high on him only because I think the real question will be athleticism at the next level because essentially the slowdown system that he played it at Virginia, they were able to hide him a little bit more. And in the NBA, when pretty much everything is based off athleticism, it's not going to, it's not going to be good for them. And I think the bigger head scratcher is, is that they took a, guy, a couple of guys that I don't know fixes their actual problems. That's and right. Essentially, you did you traded from the sixth overall pick to much later to take a guy who is significantly older than your two best players and has had medical issues. That's the same thing with Jerome, too. They both have hip issues right. in their past. And I'm not big, a huge fan of drafting guys with hip issues that dramatically. It, it just feels like Phoenix, when they did this evaluation, and in comparison to Atlanta, I would make this, this analysis, they drafted to fit a need, but didn't go out and necessarily get the guys they needed, per se. They just went with the best overall prospects that, could, that would fill those two needs. Right. Which I think, again, is not the correct way to do it. Sorry, I I forgot to mention those two, which is three-point shooting and perimeter defense. Well, yeah. 
Yeah, and they, they've, they've now got some guys that can do that a little bit. But on Ty Jerome, a phrase that you've used with me off-air about him is system player at Virginia. And uh, not to get ahead of myself by mentioning something with the Cavs, because I'm going to get to them later on. They are a fascinating story. But a little bit of commonality, perhaps, with uh, Dylan Windler at 26. The Cavs taking him a little higher than a lot of teams had him rated. Could be a little bit of the same thing in terms of, again, one of the purest shooters in college, but are you going to be able to get those shots off at the pro level? And, and again, when you're at Belmont, and most of your games are against that level of competition, it's a little bit easier to go out there and jack up all the threes and even get the rebounds that he's able to get. I don't think anybody is considering him as, as probably more than a, uh, a rotational player at this point. If, he, if, if, if he's more than that, then I, as a Cavs fan, will be delighted but that's the whole thing here. You get guys like Jerome and Wendler, that's why they're available in the later first round, because of questions about how they're going to be able to handle NBA defenses. Right, and, and again, I, this is the, uh, I'm not trying to bury Ty Jerome. No. I think he's a really good player, Right, and he can make a lot of things. I just think value-wise in that pick, I would rather have other people who are still available at that time. Right. Because I, I don't buy into the fact that Jerome was a steady, great college player, but in my opinion, never showed me anything that would be like he's better than a rotation guy. Right. If you're looking at the first half, first one through 20 picks of the draft, or excuse me, the, like the first round of the draft, I just would not take that risk. It doesn't ring to me that if this, I would even in that narrative be like, I could at least understand if it was very similar to when the Kings picked Jimmer in the first round. Of like, you could see the potential in college that he could be a crazy great scorer. Right. And in this case, I, I, Ty Jerome just felt to me like he was a cog in the system of Virginia. Now, could I be wrong? Incredibly, it's very possible I am. He could be a great player, but I don't see him at best being more than a six-man at best at this time. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's how a lot of people see him. And again, for Phoenix at this yeah. point to be need, needing to rely on him to be a lead point guard going forward uh, certainly looks to be a problem for them. When you get into winners and losers in the draft, uh, again, there are always guys, and we've, we've covered it a little bit, guys like Cameron Johnson, who are going to get paid a little bit better uh, based on his draft slot than some might have thought. Uh, Dylan Wendler, as far as being a first-round pick for the Cavs. So the guys that are deemed to get reached upon a little bit here are always the ones who come out winners, at least financially. At least in that sense, generally speaking, losers the obvious one in the draft here, although, again, sitting there two years in a row, picking up a guy with significant injury questions, but adding him to one of the most intriguing rosters in the league, the Denver Nuggets at 44 with ball ball. And, uh, again, you could look at that and you could say, that guy might have gone to exactly the perfect place for him as far as not getting exposed for the things that he uh, can't do or as far as racking up too many minutes potentially, because he, he projects to be a guy throughout his career that should that would be best served being limited to a certain number of minutes. Uh, a guy who situationally can go out there and play twin towers with the Joker. Uh, I mean, Ball Ball, yeah, he's going to suffer with the paychecks relative to uh, what he thought the rookie deal was going to be. Uh, but again, as much of a win as it is for Denver to scoop him up value-wise at 44, in the long run, that guy might be in the best possible spot he could be in for a successful career. Right, Rick, one thing that we, we've discussed off, off podcast and in other narratives is the issue that I think this tends to happen a little bit more in the NFL than in the NBA. It, it, we haven't in the NBA in a long time seen a guy 
right. that I had projections of certain numbers. Like, again, it was only in the later first round, but to see a player with that amount of talent fall to that point is just crazy to me. And it's, it's more uh, credit to Denver GM, BP, Tim Connolly, who's done absolutely a fantastic job. Yes. Helping to rebuild that organization from the absolute depths of nothingness to essentially a team that I would argue at this point, even with LeBron and AD, is the number one team in the Western Conference at this point. And I was kind of more shocked at the moment that teams who were in that slot or in that range not take a chance because I've said this publicly, they cut second rounders every day, Rick. Right. That happens so often. And for what Denver essentially gave to Miami to get that pick was the future second and a, and a couple million, to my knowledge, in cash. Well, if with just how the Nuggets play basketball, that's just going to be impossible to have to deal with. Because you can trot out lineups now if Bulbul is healthy and he doesn't have the character concerns that were swirling around him prior to the draft. You're going to have lineups out there with four or five shooters, especially three got three shooters over six foot nine, and most of the league, to my knowledge, can't deal with that. Right. And essentially, it's very. I thought it was bizarre. Not that he fell out of the first round, but he fell to 44. Because most of the time, when you fall to 44. You're usually a guy that plays in summer league, plays a couple seasons, and then you're out of the league. And at, at, at best for Denver, the worst situation for them is that he's a spot guy. They play him 15 to 20 minutes. He can help protect the rim, give Nikola Jokic some resting time, and then also help space the floor. And one thing I always we talked about in the NFL draft a lot was when Bill Walsh and all the 49ers staff, when they were in their heyday, they drafted for and the biggest thing you could ever say about Bill Walsh is that he drafted for what the player could be for him, not what he was projected to be. Right. And I think that's the issue sometimes with a lot of these NBA teams. They try to they draft in terms of potential overall instead of the fit. Well, and the thing is, too, and again, he probably wouldn't be a good fit on a real young team. I'm looking at some of the ones drafting ahead, like right. Atlanta. He wouldn't really fit in with their plan. Chicago, they but got I will a lot say of... Too, Rick, I was kind of shocked Golden State didn't take a chance twice. They had two opportunities to but, take it. Unsurprisingly, you anticipated my point perfectly. I'm looking at Golden State yeah. with the two picks, Boston with a pick in there, and Al Horford apparently going to be leaving. And I'm looking at it yeah. like... I, I almost think it's a situation here where when you take a high-profile guy like that, I think it's a matter of being risk-averse. Like, if he doesn't pan out, yeah. maybe you, you lose a little bit of, of cachet on that. I'm looking at Boston and Golden State and going, what's your malfunction? How do you pass on a guy like him? Right. And the big thing with both of them, I mean, also Miami and Dallas are also in that timeline, too. The real question I have was that I can understand the medical things with Bobo, and I can understand the promise. Narrative, but I don't. I think it almost felt like GMs were so risk adverse at that point in a draft that I felt was the most time to be risk positive at that point. Yeah. And again, this just goes to show that Denver. When I remember we talked about Golden State and the infamous line of uh, of their owner Joe Lake of light years ahead. Denver is now putting out. It's going to put out a roster at some point with some premierly talented guys, and essentially. It had to do nothing or spend anything extravagant to even get any of their players on their roster. If, if you know, too, the currently the highest draft pick on that team is Jamal Murray, and he was a later, he was a mid, oh, not mid, excuse me, he was a early first-round pick, but he was not top five. Mid-lottery, he was like sixth or seventh, so... 
Yeah, I mean, mean, mid-lottery, which that in and of itself, because it was not in one of these deeper drafts of the last couple of years. So he was a guy where you take him. Personally for me, that that goes back to the staff and the scouting department of Denver. And I love it when when teams take risks like that because at best, Rick, even if he flames out, you essentially gave away a future second-round pick in cash, which, to be honest, to most teams is probably not. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. And again, you look at it, and again, if he can, and I, I think that is basically what his peak is career-wise as far as what I'm projecting for him and him holding up, is if he can be a 15- to 20-minute guy off the bench uh, and, and an elite reserve coming off the bench in that way, if he can do that, if the gamble on Michael Porter a year ago uh, pays off, I mean, look at what this Denver team's got already. And look at what they could be adding to it in ways that are, relatively speaking, under the radar. And by under the radar, I mean, you're not even talking like going out and getting like above average free agents. This isn't free agency. You're using later draft picks to be able to get potentially impact players. Right, and, and that's what great teams do. And that's what I would argue is that's how good GMs and scouting departments do, is that you... You have to realize in terms of it's all about, in my opinion, value acquisition. Yeah. It's using what you have to get that much significantly better. It's what uh, R.C. Buford did with the Spurs. It's the same thing with what Jerry Krause did with the Chicago Bulls. It, it, it's just, I was, again, not, I'm not more shocked that Bull Bulls fell out of the first round. I'm more shocked that there wasn't another enterprising GM or scouting staff that was like, I want to I want to take a risk on this kid and buy into a situation that the worst case scenario that he doesn't work out well was a second round pick and catch because right. that's all it was essentially needed to get him for Denver. Yeah, it's uh, remarkable. They didn't give up a great trade to get a ball ball at this point. Right, right. What a, what a great move on their part uh, to, to buy low on this guy and potentially get a really, really good payoff, particularly when you're looking at the ceilings of the players drafted uh, before him and after him there in the mid second round and this is a thing where again in terms of being interesting being aggressive one one of the weirder potential rosters out there but one that is very promising at this point if you squint your eyes and everything goes right i know this is probably another fdh lounge drinking game uh pound a shot whenever rick morris talks about the post lebron cavaliers but we got to do it. We got to talk about the Cavs because this is not just me being biased. They are a fascinating story right now because, again, you take a guy with the fifth pick, and I'm, I'm saying this you know, in a facetious way. Although, again, I'm, I'm a fan of the pick. Darius Garland, who, aside from the fact that he's an even better shooter right now than Colin Sexton, is essentially sort of a Colin Sexton clone, it seems to me. does a lot of the same things well. Neither one of them noted at being uh, that great at this point as distributing and getting plays made for other guys. That is going to be a backcourt where they're going to play together. Uh, and again, a lot of people are talking the Portland model uh, in terms of uh, McCollum and Lillard. But you know, McCollum is probably more of a classic two-guard than either of these guys are, uh, certainly height-wise. So uh, the Portland thing, it's an interesting analogy, but it doesn't quite fit there. Additionally... Uh, Another guy who a lot of people are considering to be a guard, although he might be borderline big enough to, I'm hoping anyways, to play small forward in the pros, pick that I love, Kevin Porter at 30, very high upside guy, I had him like 10 on my board, 
uh, a guy who dropped because of uh, character questions this past year at uh, USC and getting suspended and getting thought to be a head case. But one possibility, again, John Beeline liked to play smaller lineups in college. This is a thing where if the Cavs had hired a first-time head coach right now, I would be wincing. If they had hired, and I liked some of the 30-something assistants they were talking to, but going this way, you got to have a John Beeline guy. you got to have an older, trusted, experienced coach, even if he's a first-time NBA coach, because that might be the one thing, and if he can design a system and get them to buy into it, uh, again, this would be a tiny lineup by NBA standards, but uh, in, in my dream of dreams, uh, I'm looking at a backcourt that is Sexton and uh, Garland. I'd like to try Porter at the three. I'd like to try Chetty at the four, K-Love at the five. Uh, spacing certainly wouldn't be an issue with that uh, lineup. Defense could be, but uh, again, this is a thing where it feels like there's no in-between. Like the Cavs, like this, this experiment is either going to explode on them or they're going to be really good again before anybody thinks they're going to be. Well, I think for the Cavs situation too, Rick, is, is that they're an interesting case study of how you, how two smart guards would work in a system together. And at least the one thing you can look at with them and say that I would, in this case, consider being the Excel out of top three potential of those guys. This, like I said, I'm always a risk positive when it comes to the NBA draft, and they took a risk in Garland, Darius. Excuse me, Garland, who had flashes at Vanderbilt, but isn't, we don't really know what his ceiling is. If his player comp is anything, we go right back to Portland with Damian Lillard. That's what most draft picks seem to see in him. But it's going to be a very interesting time for the Cavaliers, especially with, you know, you, you drafted Sexton in the first round last year. He had a solid, a good rookie season. You're going to have a new offense. It's going to be a lot of spread. And the question I've always wondered, Rick, is, at some point, I knew this was going to happen, that a team was going to be put into a situation where we were going to see ultimate small ball again. And I think we're going to possibly see it with the Cavaliers to start. But I think I would commend Cleveland for also to go to Kevin Porter Jr. really quickly. They gave up a lot to get him in the trajectory of things. Yeah. But I would, I'm always willing to take a risk on a guy like that, especially with some of the stuff that reminds you of James young James Harden when he was at Arizona State. He can do that. And my my rule has always been, Rick, is that, well, the price steep, yes, but like I said earlier, you're giving away second-round picks. Second-round picks get cut every day. I really would love to see the data points, because I don't think, at least in the last, I would say going back to the 2000 NBA draft, that there are that big number of breakout players that came from the second round. There has There are many notable names. Most of them Spurs and Paul Millsap and Jokic, but the uh, the value of I think a second round pick in the NBA draft tends to be overblown. It does, and as far as it goes with Porter, again, you can buy number twos. You want to get back in there. That's the one thing I'll give Dan Gilbert credit for is that uh, he's not averse to doing that, to spending the money to buy number twos. There again, there was a good amount of money that went into this package as well, and it's a thing right. where yeah, with Kevin Porter Jr. and and also too with with Garland, this is a thing where. And you look at Sexton a year ago, who, again, me and you were all over him a year ago, and it's a thing where when you're in the situation, and you saw it the first time LeBron left Cleveland, and when you are rebuilding, again, there are certain markets out there where you just know you're not going to be able to sign 
top flight free agents. I mean, LeBron was a magnet to be able to get, say, Kevin Love to come here, uh, Shaq for what it was worth, for what he had left the first time around. But when you don't have a LeBron, which is, that's something that is, is so far out of the ordinary in terms of the normal situation, all of a sudden you're, again, the Cleveland Cavaliers without LeBron, Top-level talent, you can only get it through the draft by and large. I mean, maybe you can trade for a guy uh, and have him really kind of develop, but that doesn't happen very often either. So I was initially, as a lifelong Cavs fan, despondent when they were out of the top three, and then I immediately just set my mind to, okay, I I want them to swing for the fences. I I swing from the heels, go in there and do that, and that's where, again— it's interesting. They didn't do it with Wendler at 26. They got a guy who I think is projecting to be a rotation player, and I'm okay with that, basically. But at uh, 5 and at 30, they swung for the fences, Ben Chu, and it's a thing where, again, you look at it, and uh, the, the Cavs and a lot of the standard draft grades out there, teams aren't, or, or so, some of the pundits out there are not grading them as highly because it is kind of an out-of-the-ordinary type move. But again, I'm kind of squinting at it. I'm projecting Beeline bringing some of the systems in at Michigan. He wasn't afraid to go small ball at Michigan. He's a guy who's not going to be afraid to experiment. Again, this is a team that just signed uh, the Cal uh, coach to, uh, the Cal women's coach to come join the coaching staff. The Cavs are in a very, yes, they are in a very adventurous mode right now, Ben Chu, so... It is not hard to see how this could pan out really, really well for them. Right. And there's also the inverse of that, Rick. It could go really bad. Very much so. And it could explode in their face. But yes. I always like to say you always have to take risks in the NBA draft. And, you know, if Garland pans out and Windler pans out and Kevin Porter pans out, they got a really good young team, really, to start. And the worst-case scenario is that, and I, I feel like and we've discussed this already, is that when teams get so focused on guys to fit the team, they don't see the forest through the trees at right. the end of the day. And I think that's again, occasionally the issue with draft picks at the end of the day, too, which is they see that, and, and again, I, I'm not going to say that I'm not a proponent of that as well as when you like certain players, is that the projection is where is what they think makes sense instead of what could be overall in terms of the team dynamic. And right. I hope we all see this starts to change, because I know this was an issue with the NFL draft for with Hawks. Right. But I hope we get to see sort of an evolution a bit of, 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 a, of, a, of analysts and writers paying more attention when they do their grades to how that will fit for the overall team instead of what they believe is the best overall player. Right. And that's the whole thing here, too. This is something where if it works out, it's going to help change the paradigm much like how Golden State did years ago, much like how I, I think you alluded to Denver is kind of doing as far as their player acquisition. Other teams are maybe not copying from the Denver model quite as much right now, but they are really going to, especially if Denver reaches the full potential that I think they're going to reach in the next couple of years. So that's one of the things that's always interesting in sports, and that's the viewpoint from which you and I watched this through, Ben, and that's why it was worth talking about things with the Cavs that when somebody is doing something that has the potential, like you said, could blow up in their faces, but if this thing works out, it's going to change the game, and everybody around the league is going to stand up and take notice. Right, and I and I, I always personally believe as someone who's been watching this league for at least going on nearly two decades now that it, it feels to me that we're never going to ever be at full positionless basketball. Right. But we're, we're getting to the evolution of the game of more spread, more flex sets, more ability to spread the floor, 
one of the very few NBA drafts that we didn't talk about it at peak, but from picks like 20 to 35, there were a lot of very good college players that were snapped up by teams. And if you look at guys that kind of dropped in that situation, like Portland with the Sear Little, there, there were a lot of very good players still at the back end of this draft. And we might look back five, ten years from now saying, like, the middle of this draft was crap, but the real gems came from 20 to, to 40. Well, I, uh, I, I had... Or 20 uh, to 44 if we want to include Bobo at this point. Yes. I... <laughs> I had texted a friend of mine uh, before, I mean, a mutual friend before pick 26, and basically uh, expressed an extreme amount of enthusiasm for Kevin Porter Jr. or Keldon Johnson. Didn't get either one of them there, got Kevin Porter Jr. With a, with a couple picks later. But yeah, Keldon Johnson is another guy who, again, going to San Antonio, gee, you think they know a thing or two about roster building? That guy could really flourish there. Yeah, he, he was one of the guys I really liked coming out. I mean, another guy that we could even start to just talk about at the tail end of the draft was produced Carson, or uh, excuse me, it's it Keith, it, it, it Keith and Edwards, correct? Yes. My, my mistake, I always mispronounced the name. No, you got Boston it. With their entire situation. Yeah. With possibly no Kyrie, he might get some starters minutes at periods of time and they bring Terry Rozier back. But I, there was a lot of good college talent this year and also international talent. I know we don't have a huge amount of time, but Indiana picked up a Gorga Bisbee. Is going to be, I think, a very interesting pick for them, especially with Miles sure. Turner ha- having some issues at times. So it, this is more of an intriguing draft than anything else. It wasn't as deep as last year's, but we ha- there's a lot of guys I think we're going to hear from in the course of the next couple of NBA seasons. Oh yeah, and the totality of the night, you look at Indiana adding T.J. Warren also, and their roster, <laughs> assuming they keep their pieces together in the off season, just got that much more interesting. I know that uh, FDH senior editor and noted Maryland homer Jason Jones is just waiting for me to point this out but Atlanta the one name that didn't come up before is getting Bruno Fernando at 34 I know Jason <laughs> thinks that's going to be huge for them yeah he, he was he was one of the guys I noticed during the NCAA tournament that had the game that I might fit that system perfectly and can make a lot of big plays and then stole some you know stole some time for however they're going to be setting up their lineup so again I, I, I think a lot of people expected this to said early on this draft is not deep, and I tend to think they were correct in terms of overall talent. But, again, we tend to misjudge guys who will be solid rotational players or guys that can make big impact during the NBA playoffs. We essentially saw what happened this playoff run with guys. Like, I know he wasn't drafted, but Fred Van Vliet played exceptionally well in the finals. You also have to give credit to, to a lot of in terms of uh, other guys that were able to step up in the postseason that were not necessarily household names years ago. That's right. That's right. And when you're talking about valuable rotation pieces, since I got Jason's point in there, I'm going to homer for a couple of my Rocky top guys as well here. Grant Williams going to Boston with the 22nd pick in the first round. Admiral Schofield going to Philadelphia with the 42nd pick overall. Uh, those feel like they're going to be good roster fits for those teams going and, forward. And another one that I don't think we, we, we have to make sure we mention too, the 76 are taking a, a, essentially acquiring the pick from Boston, but taking my team's Bible of Washington, who's been a very interesting prospect, arguably was the best defender in college basketball last year. It's going to be interesting to see where he exactly fits in Philly, but another guy that you could project to be a future starter or a guy that can be a lockdown defender, very similar to Bruce Bowen in uh, San Antonio. 
Very much so, yeah. So these are a couple guys. It's kind of clip and save. You know, think about uh, some of the things that we've just mentioned here, and we'll see how our projections on these guys kind of pan out going forward. Uh, a pleasure to break this down with you, Ben Chu, and uh, I look forward to when we get the fallout from uh, free agency here. Free agency, of course, to start, uh, I guess, this year, actually now 6 p.m., Eastern Time on June 30th, uh, July 1st, the traditional start of free agency. Once we get through that uh, later in the month of July or perhaps early August, we'll come back in, break it down as far as it goes with the whole NBA offseason picture. But in the meantime, wonderful to have you breaking down the draft as always. You are gold, my man. Well, th- thank you, Rick. As, as per usual, basketball never ends. It never ends, and uh, it's always great talking about it with you, Ben Chu. Thank you for being here, and thank you, everybody, for checking out FDH Lounge Mini Episode number 1126. As we bring the show to a close, we would like to extend our deepest gratitude to NBC, CBS, ABC, Fox, all clear channel affiliates, TNT, TBS, USA, UPN, Deadspin.com, YouTube.com, YTMND.com, MySpace.com, various blogs, Fox News, CNN, CNBC, MSNBC, IamBoard.com, Billboard.com, Google.com, ESPN, ESPN2, ESPN News, ESPN Classic, NBA TV, TV, NFL Network, Sports Time Ohio, Athlon Magazine, Comedy Central, Cartoon Network, The Boomerang Channel, QVC, BET, The Spice Channel, Steno Notebooks, Manwich, Papermate Office Supplies, Waitresses, Strippers, Bartenders, Garbage Men, Janitors, Microwave Popcorn, The Writers of The Office, Scrubs, Entourage, My Name is Earl, Oz, Metalocalypse and the Boondocks, Aquafina, and The Periodic Table of Elements. 